University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, this is Belle Gibson. In 2009, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and only four months to live. And she underwent chemotherapy and radiation, but nothing seemed to be working. So she decided to take a holistic route with exercise, meditation, and going vegan. And she made a complete recovery. Her story went viral and it was tweeted and shared and liked and reached millions of people around the world. And in 2013, she launched a healthy eating app called the Whole Food Pantry, which was downloaded over 200,000 times in the first month since her story was so familiar with so many. Except the problem is that Belle never had cancer. Her story was a lie. And yet people shared liked and promoted her story without even questioning whether or not it was true. And it was shared millions of times online. In 2017, Bell was fined over $410,000 by the Australian government for falsely giving out information and misleading consumers. You see, the reality is Bell's story is not unusual. In fact, every single day, every single hour, Every single minute, we are inundated with misleading and falsified information from TV, radio, print, media, social media, and more. Businesses, health advice, medical advice, politicians, news outlets, and social media users of fame will false, give out false narrative or number of issues and products and agendas and stories. We see it every single day. Sometimes not even without realizing it. It's on billboards, a story in the news, a clip on YouTube, an email forward, a post on social media, a statement from an organizational leader or from a politician, a friend that asks you if you heard about it, that celebrity that has a theory, the product that will solve all your problems. Sometimes it's intentionally deceitful with hidden agenda or to sow discord. Sometimes it's marketing to convince you that their company is best and their, their competitors are incompetent. And sometimes it's as innocent as passing along what was given to us. There are both professional and haphazard distributors of misleading and false information all around us. And this is only going on and it's going to become more complicated as the years are going on because there's this development of this thing called synthetic media. It, it, it decides of whether it's true or false. Imagine the ability to create a video in which you put words in the mouth of someone who never actually said it and yet it is so convincing. Imagine how that can be used by politicians, by pastors, by marketing gurus. See, data scientists did an investigation into false news and misinformation, and what they found was that misleading or false information travels faster, further, deeper, and more broadly than truth. 
In fact, false news and misinformation is 70% more likely to spread than truth. What we fail to recognize is how often we become a pawn of someone else's agenda or active participants in the propagation of lies, and lies can often lead to the detriment of others. This might be an understatement, but we live in an era of misinformation. And the challenge is that human nature gravitates to misinformation. The same data scientists that found that false information and misleading news spread 70% faster, deeper, further, and more broadly than truth, and they wanted to find out why. And what they found from their study was that humans are drawn to the novelty of information. When you know something is, is new, you, you're more likely to want to share it with, with other people because you feel like you have somehow accessed information that other people don't have. And especially when we feel important, we share news to others, drawing them into what we feel like we can celebrate, that we know something that they don't. And they also found that false news exhibits more surprise and disgust than other emotional responses. False news often solidifies and reinforces how we feel about certain topics or issues or persons or groups of people. We have an emotional response to this kind of information rather than a rational response. Because when we care deeply and passionately about an issue, we're more likely to respond with an emotional impulse than a rational one to consider the validity of the claim, the quote, and the story. And we're becoming more and more distrustful of organizations, institutions, and leaders, especially those that are not part of our tribe or our party. In fact, a recent study found that people are more likely to trust their hairdresser or a man on the street more than an organizational, medical, or governmental leader. Think about that for a second. As one person put it, misinformation is not likely to be plumbing problems you fix. It's a social condition like a crime that you must constantly monitor and adjust to. So the question is, as followers of Jesus, what do we do with this? What is our responsibility to truth in an era of misinformation? Are we not called as Jesus followers to be seekers and proclaimers of the truth? And for this, we take a look at the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verse 26. We're in our second week of our series, Forging Through the Fog, how the church leads a grace-filled way in an era of partisan politics. Last week, we looked at an invitation of Jesus to give allegiance to God's party, which is the kingdom of God lived out through the church. And while our human tendency is to put our hopes in governmental systems and leaders these are mere mechanisms for improving our world. However, at the end of the day, Jesus is calling us to truth and to follow him in God's work in redeeming the world. Again, my promise to you last week and to continue this week and in our series is that you will not hear from my lips the names of candidates or an insinuation of who you should and should not vote for, nor theologically guilting you to cast your vote one way or the other. So for this, what do we need to understand about the book of Numbers? Well, this is a conversation about truth and misinformation. Numbers is a fascinating book because it bridges the great story of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings to the deliverance into the promised land. 
Numbers is supposed to be a time of preparation to enter in the promised land. The stakes are high. Just over the hill is the culmination of God's ancient promise to Abraham, the land flowing with milk and honey, the providence of their freedom. This is everything that they had dreamed for as they slaved away in years of tyranny in Egypt. So God asked Moses to appoint a scouting party, to have them cross over the Jordan to survey the land and to spy on the inhabitants. And they needed to know what kind of terrain they were going to encounter. And who were the people living there? Did they have fortifications? Was there a standing army? Was there any weak points? So the scouting party set out into the land. They quickly discovered that the land was, in fact, blessed. They cut down massive grapevines, and, and, and the soil was so fertile. And for 40 days, they explored this land in secret. But something world-altering happened when they returned to the Hebrew camp and reported back to Moses what they found. And it says this in verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land in which flows with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live there in the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those who are living in it. All the people saw there were great in size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak that came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked to them the same. The band of spies goes into the promised land. They observe the towns and cities and the inhabitants. They confiscated fruit in this ripe and lush, and they returned to the camp. And instead of boasting about the great possibilities of the land and the bounty of this fruit, the men gave a report of fear. They start talking about giants. They claim they saw the descendants of the Anak. Uh, the Anakim were a race of giants that are actually mentioned in the book of Genesis. Look it up. It's quite fascinating. They give a laundry list of, of all these dominating tribes, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites. And all this culminated in a statement that sums up the tone of their report. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The most widely known complex is probably the inferiority complex which fits quite well with the spies and the land of Canaan. These spies developed what I like to call a grasshopper complex. They viewed themselves as inferior, ill-equipped, and incapable against such a foe. And they saw the inhabitants of the promised land as great, as gigantic, as powerful, as equipped, as fortified, and their walls seemed impenetrable. The grasshopper complex welled up within them to produce fear and hopelessness and indifference. 
Sure, submission and defeat made sense. They had been slaves in Egypt for all of these years. Day after day, generation after generation, they had bowed down to the superior power of Egypt. Therefore, why would they go into the promised land if guaranteed defeat was there? They were a group wandering refugees. They were homeless and limited on their supplies. Who were they against such a foe? And besides the fact, they had been in the desert. And God had brought them food and manna and quail every single day. So didn't it make sense to stay a little longer instead of going to death and defeat? And yet the writers of Numbers points out in verse 32 that the men spread a bad report among the Israelites. The Hebrew word used here is dada, which means defamation, evil report, unfavorable saying. The truth had no chance. These cowards were spreading lies and misleading information among the Hebrew camp. As one person put it, task is not to make the objective study of truth insofar as in the favor of the enemy and then set it before the masses with academic fairness. His task is to serve our own right, always unflinchingly. The author of this quote was Adolf Hitler. And in 1933, when the Nazis seized power, Hitler established the Reich's Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, headed by Joseph Goebbels. And the ministry's aim was to ensure that the Nazi message was successfully communicated through art, music, theater, film, books, radio, educational material, and the press. And for years, the German people were inundated with the Nazi message, so much so that when the Nazis began to act out their ideals, relocating Jews into ghettos, closing down Jewish businesses, and arresting political rivals, the people supported it with patriotic zeal. You see, the nature of misinformation is, is not just to manipulate and exploit our emotions, but it plays on our hopes and our fears. Again, it doesn't always come in evil and maniacal ways like the Nazis. In fact, we experience it day after day through marketing, media, politics, and consumerism. Organizations want you to think that their product is the best, that they, it will make sense to give you satisfaction, to keep you safe and secure. And despite our individualistic pursuits, we are herd creatures. We are controlled by a herd instinct. Remember that old phrase? Well, everyone else is doing it. Therefore, we make so many decisions and take so much information based on what the herd says and does. And it is more difficult to look at something from an objective perspective than we care to admit. So take, for example, the ongoing debate between Michael and LeBron. Yes, I'm talking about LeBron James and Michael Jordan. So I have many of my friends who grew up in the same generation that fall into the category that they think that Michael is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. On the other hand, what I tried to do is remove a bias lens that perpetuated from my childhood, namely the marketing ploy from Nike and Gatorade and Hanes and Pro Stars and Upper Deck Trading Cards and Space Jam that business model was based on me believing and understanding that Michael Jordan, no matter who comes and plays, will be the greatest of all time. 
Objectively, I like to see the difference in basketball style, level of competition, character, namely the fact that Michael Jordan used to punch teammates in the throat if they didn't do what he wanted, or in the fact that Michael didn't really win anything until Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson came along. See, the reality is how often and unintentionally we only hear and see what we want to hear and see. When we've already formulated an opinion about a theological matter, a political stance, a social issue, a race or nationality or a particular religious group, we are more likely to only believe the information that reinforces our opinions and the stances that we already have. Instead, asking what the data is seeing and what I'm hearing and what I'm reading to support my idea and theory, we only accept information based on if it supports our idea or theory. We're more likely to have an emotional response to information that supports it than a rational response to something that contradicts it. And when we care deeply and passionately about an issue, we're more likely to respond with an emotional impulse rather than a rational one. Here's an example. In 2017, uh, it feels like a decade ago because for some reason, 2020 has felt like five years all on its own. A man attacked 50 people in 2017, uh, uh, killing, uh, killing four people on the, on the bridge uh, in London. And, and the man was eventually shot and killed by the police. It was just a horrible incident. And the day after the terrorist attack, uh, there was a picture that went viral. It was a woman wearing a hijab walking across the bridge. Now, social media erupted with all sorts of anti-Muslim posts declaring this woman was indifferent and apathetic and even enjoying the terrorist attack that happened on the bridge. And for those that already were suspicious or distrustful towards Muslims, they saw this woman as merely confirming what they already believed. Except, when the woman was interviewed live at the scene, we come to find out that she had just witnessed and was in shock at what she just experienced. The fact that she herself could have been stabbed and attacked by this man because she was right there. And in fact, she was not indifferently on her phone. She was calling her family to let them know that she was perfectly safe. But needless to say, we have a hard time with truth, especially when that truth contradicts what we believe religiously, politically, environmentally, relationally, socially, economically, and so on. In the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, if you hold my teachings and are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The Greek word used here is aletheo, which means fact, certainty, or even one's personal excellence. Let's chew on that for just a second. Jesus tells us that truth shall set us free. The truth is wrapped up in how Jesus was shaping this teaching in this new way of life. He declares in verse 31, if you hold my teachings, you are really my disciples. Jesus has laid out for us what is truth, what is good, what is noble, what is just. We merely have to look at Jesus' actions and teachings to discover what is truth in our world. Truth is how we ought to be. 
Truth and how God sees things. Truth and how the world should work. So what does that mean if things contradict Jesus' teachings and way? What do we do with it? What does it mean to Jesus' followers that we have an obligation to seek and proclaim truth and not to give in and to promote misinformation and false news? I think it's important to understand the context that Jesus spoke these words and viewing the world differently than most. You see, Jesus had just witnessed a group of religious leaders drag a woman before them, accuse her of being the town whore, and demanding that Jesus take action as the law of Moses commanded for such a sin and to stone this woman to death. And those men were there ready with rock in hand to strike down this woman till she died. And they had set the facts for Jesus. She had done this. We know what the law says, but what do you say? And Jesus diffuses their propaganda agenda against trying to murder this woman by saying to them, whichever one of you has never sinned, why don't you be the first to throw the stone? And the scriptures tells us that one by one, they dropped their stones and went away. And when they were gone, Jesus told the woman that he does not condemn her and sends her off for forgiveness and forever changed. He then turned to the crowd that was standing there and said to them, if you hold on to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus warns us in the Gospels again and again to look out for wolves as they are in sheep's clothing. In John's Gospel, Jesus said that such people have one intent, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. James tells us in his letter that the human mouth is capable to cause so much harm in our relationships, in our community, and in the world. It is like a spark that sets a great forest fire. As harsh as it sounds, we have the responsibility not only to see, but to call misinformation what it is. Deceit and lies. And we know how the Bible feels about such things. And whether we like it or not, as Jesus followers, we have a role to play in this era of misinformation. We can play the role of sucker, the person who simply believes what we are told, allowing it to shape our views and reinforce what we already want to believe. We can play the role of transmitter who spreads the misinformation, fanning the flame of lies and destructive path. Or we can play the role of truth seeker and teller. Did you ever play the game telephone when you were growing up? It's where you get in a circle of people and one person gives a bit of information to the next person who then passes it on to the next person, the next person. And eventually that same bit of information comes back to the very first person that it started with. But more often than not, the original bit of information is so vaguely misconstrued from the final bit of information that comes back around. At some point, the message gets muddled and the facts no longer are facts. And each person along the way took part in this transmission of misinformation. 
So what do we do? We can play a part in this world of misinformation and misleading facts. What difference can we make? I think the Bible is pretty clear on this. Jesus' followers have an obligation to the truth. And when you put that into practice in an era of misinformation, then it means that you seek to find out the facts before you believe and share that information. That sounds very time-consuming, doesn't it? But maybe we're not called to laziness and haphazardness and carelessly believing whatever we see and hear and what we are told. Maybe we are not called to not only see and hear what reinforces what we want to believe. When reading something online or hearing something, consider the source that's producing it. For one, don't just take something said or seen at face value. You should check multiple sources and outlets to confirm the information. A simple Google search can yield a multiplicity of sources that either support or contradict that information. Did you know that you can actually go to something called factcheck.org, which is an amazing free resource that allows you to simply search or see if something's false or true or misleading. You can actually copy-paste that link from that article that you see circling around in social media or your grandparents that still send you email forwards. And maybe if you don't have the time to do that, then maybe think twice before clicking, liking, sharing, and commenting. See, our obligation to the truth also means that we need to own our mistakes and errors. That means that we have the responsibility to admit when we were wrong about something instead of simply deleting that post or acting like we didn't say that thing or to justify the lie even further. The problem is we live in a culture that doesn't like to admit it's wrong. And even if someone issues a statement of their error, it's typically these words are usually voided from it. I am sorry, I was wrong. Instead, it's my condolences, my sympathies, my regrets. See, finding out that we are wrong is part of the journey of getting it right. And that means that we have to clarify something online. We have to clarify that we might have passed on misinformation and conversations or stood behind a lie. And finally, I think seeing things from a broader standpoint is probably the most effective way to get us out of the place where we simply reinforce what we want to believe. We have become so siloed in our groups and perspectives. We have tunnel vision and don't even realize it, that we simply believe what is told to us from a politician, from a political party, from a news outlet, and so on. In the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly interacting with people who did not see eye to eye with him, whether it was over politics or economics, culture or religion. And when we broaden the type of news and resources and people from different perspectives, the more likely we are to actually find the truth instead of reinforcing what we want to believe. Critical thinking shouldn't just be a synonym for doubting or debunking something. A point of research isn't simply poking holes in a story. It's understanding a story better. Or if someone is telling that story maliciously and competently, it's getting deeper to the truth that lies under the surface. These are just some practical ways that we can seek and be truth proclaimers in an era of misinformation. 
So may we forge through the fog, leading a grace-filled way in an era of partisan politics.